All right, welcome to Seacoast. Love the sound of that uh, passionate conversations about things that matter on a day like this. Maybe no other day of the year. Okay, so I just got to do a really, real quick head count while you're going back to your seats. So if you, if you really care that the Falcons win, say, what, say hoorah. If you really care the Patriots win, say hoorah. If you really don't give a rip, say, don't give a rip. Wow. If you wish the Chargers were still in San Diego, say amen. If you say L.A. can have them, huh? Who? Yeah, okay. Well, it's a great day to be together. It's a fun day in the culture, and for football fans like me, it's a great day to just enjoy, hopefully, a good, uh, a good game. My name is Pastor Dale. I'm one of the teaching pastors here, and it's my privilege to welcome you and to invite you to get into the God's Word together, uh, to go to God's Word together with us in Luke chapter 15. So open your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. You know, while we do that, uh, sometimes you have guests that come a long way to get here. I'd like to welcome a guest here today. Tim Askew, would you introduce your guest and tell us where he's from? Yeah, so welcome, brother, from Nairobi, Nairobi, Kenya. So welcome. Be sure and take a chance to meet Francis. Francis is also involved with ZimZam Global in terms of helping plant churches uh, throughout Kenya and is very involved in that ministry, and we're partnered up in that, trying to do some of the leadership development stuff over there, too. So we're looking forward to, uh, Becky and I look forward to being in Kenya, perhaps with a team that may involve some of you from Seacoast, uh, this coming fall. So if you want to get a up-close look at what God's doing in Kenya, kind of mark your calendar for fall and, and talk to us. Uh, we're looking forward to being with you, brother, in, in Kenya. So welcome to Seacoast. Welcome to Seacoast. Pray with me. Father God, thank you for your word and the wisdom it gives us for life. Father, we're in a series where we're trying to figure out life and figure out what life looks like in the kingdom of God as people that have been invited into that kingdom by your grace. You've given us life. You've made us citizens of your kingdom. No matter where we live, Father, whether it's in the U.S. or whether it's in Kenya or Syria or Afghanistan or anywhere else on the planet, Father, as followers of Jesus, we're a part of your great kingdom. So teach us today a little more about that kingdom, about its values, and about how you want us to live in response to that. We love you. We ask you to teach us from your word. In Christ's name, amen. As Ryan introduced so well last week, this Converge series is a study of the kingdom of God and especially this idea that the kingdom has come. The kingdom of God, as we learned last week, is not just a forever eternal kingdom, which indeed it will, it will be. That God is going to create an eternal kingdom on earth that will be forever and ever and that followers of Christ, saved by His incredible grace and what He did on the cross, would be a part of that kingdom. 
But it's also a kingdom that Jesus said, the kingdom of God is among you. It's here. It's now. It's a now kingdom as well as a forever kingdom. And it's that part of it that we're focused on. We're trying to investigate what in the world did Jesus really mean when he said to you and me, if you want to kind of have a model sample prayer, he said, then kind of pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Next phrase. Say it with me. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done, where? On earth as it is in heaven. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What's it mean to have heavenly kingdom values actually infiltrate and assimilate into our life here on planet earth? Where you and I actually live out that prayer. Where it's not just a cute little religious prayer, like kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But we slow it down and we say, what in the world did Jesus mean by that? What would it look like in your life, in my life, in our life as a church, if we were seeking by God's grace, by the power of His Spirit, the enablement of His Word and His people to be the kingdom of God on planet earth for now? actually living out the values of the kingdom another way to say it is what's it really mean for you and me to be agents of the kingdom of god ambassadors for the kingdom of god right here on planet earth that's an amazing prayer over the next few weeks we're going to look at several key what we call values of the kingdom what's the heart of god what's the heart of heaven really beat Four. So open your Bible to Luke chapter 15, and we're going to look at just one of those values today. We're going to look at three parables, one point with one big application to our life. So listen to the Word of God as we read it together. Luke chapter 15, pick it up. The first of three short stories with one key point. There's an outline provided. If you want to take some notes, I always give you an outline you can use. It will help you if you want to be able to follow and learn a little more this morning. Feel free to pull it out and follow it. The story begins like this. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near Jesus to listen to him. And both the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders of the day, began to grumble, saying, this, this man Jesus receives sinners and he eats with them. So Jesus told them this parable. Now before we go into the parables, verses 1 through 3 set the context for the story. And the context is one in which Jesus is under attack. Jesus is under fire. Jesus is being criticized by the religious leaders of his day. The people that are supposedly taking God most seriously are criticizing Jesus. And what is the point of their criticism? It's wrapped up in this. It says tax collectors and sinners were coming near to Jesus. So you've got a picture now. Jesus is teaching and there's a mob, there's a crowd gathered around. And as he's teaching, you've got two very distinct different groups, right? You've got this group of religious leaders that are listening to Jesus, trying to trick him and trap him and learn perhaps what he's teaching. And, and they're dressed in their religious garb. And you can tell, even from the way they look, that they are religious leaders. 
So they're like the bishops and pastors and popes of their day, you might say. So just kind of picture that. And then in contrast to that, it says they're ticked off because tax collectors and sinners are getting near to Jesus. So the tax collectors and sinners, maybe being a little less uh, appropriate, are pushing their way to the front and they're crowding around Jesus. And my guess is these religious leaders don't even want to touch these sinful people. Now, when it says the sinners were coming, obviously we know that all of us sin. So what's he mean by that? He's not talking about just normal, everyday sinners. He's talking about the people that have a reputation for being sinners. He's talking about tax collectors. Tax collectors were looked on by the average Jew as kind of the worst uh, scum of the earth in a way because they were usually Jews who were in partnership with Rome for the purpose of collecting Roman taxes on the people which were exorbitant and, and the way often operated this is not just your typical ca- tax collector that we all grow in love by the name IRS right okay now we get a little bit tense when we even hear that three-letter word right okay that is a There's four-letter words, there's three-letter words. They're about the same. But anyway, here we go. But the IRS, this is not just the IRS. This is more like the mafia and the IRS kind of blended together. The typical tax collector of the day collected taxes, and the way they negotiated their salaries with Rome is Rome would say, look, you have a certain region, a certain area. You work your area. This is how much we expect from you. Whatever you bring in over and above, that's your pay. So there was built into the system a tendency to be abusive with it and to be exorbitant with it and take advantage of the people who were already overtaxed by a foreign ruler who were reigning over them. That ticks you off enough. But now you've got these people that are in collusion with Rome. And it says Jesus actually was being criticized because he let those people near him. And in fact, he even ate with them. He'd go to dinner parties at their home. So picture you and me being invited to a dinner party of a person that's kind of a member of the mob. That's the closest modern-day illustration I could bring to it. But also, the mob also loved to have a few other people around known as sinners. This is a common phrase elsewhere it talks about. In fact, later in the story, they will say that, that uh, they'll use the same phrase and they'll reference prostitutes in particular. So, you know, you're talking about people that are living a lifestyle that is sinful and disgusting to the average religious Jewish person. So Jesus is being criticized because he's letting them near him. And in fact, sometimes he even goes to their turf. And it's offensive to these religious leaders. So Jesus knows that they're grumbling Um, he's surrounded by these two groups. Now, you've got to picture what he's going to do now is in earshot of both groups. So you kind of got got these tax collectors and even uh, people doing very sinful things, perhaps even prostitutes, who are amazed by what they're hearing this Jesus teach about God and about forgiveness and about life. And and, and, and they're they're wanting to hear what Jesus has to say. And then you've got the religious leaders, and they're all kind of standing around. And then Jesus tells them this parable. Let me give you the three parables very quickly and then we'll kind of unpack the points. He says, um, Jesus says, What man among you, if he had a hundred sheep 
and has lost one of them, doesn't leave the 99 in the open pasture. And by the way, that word open pasture in the Greek language could be translated wilderness. It's not really picturing. If you're picturing a nice little lake of water with a lot of grass and you kind of leave your sheep there, that's not what he's describing. The wilderness area around in Israel where they, the shepherds would often take the sheep to find food, and it was often a very rough, dangerous, rocky, deserty kind of an environment. So picture wilderness. He does, would not leave the 99 sheep in the, in the wilderness and go after one which is lost until he finds it. When he's found it, he lays it on its shoulders, kind of assuming it's probably injured. Maybe that's the reason it's gotten separated. Maybe it's fallen. Maybe it's broken its leg. We don't know. But he, the imagery is he, he even finds it. He hand carries this sheep back to the flock. He lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying, Hey, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. Then the point, verse 7, I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents, who turns back to God, than over 99 righteous people who need no repentance. Can you picture what Jesus is doing? He's not reading this out of a Bible. He's telling the story. So what do you think his eyes are doing? I want you to imagine being there in the crowd. You've got two groups that aren't intermixed because they don't want to touch each other, right? So you kind of got the religious crowd over here and you've you got the tax collectors and their, and their prostitute friends and sinners over here and Jesus is telling the story and he says, guess what? You know, there's more joy in heaven over one Maybe he looks in the direction of these sinners and tax collectors. Over one sinner who repents, then over the whole bunch of you. Then over 99 righteous people that don't need repentance. Then Jesus rolls right into a second story. He says, or, let me give you another illustration. What woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin? Now, the silver coin was, a, was the drachma in Greek in, in that world. And the drachma was a coin that was worth a good bit. It was worth one day's wages. So if you're working like minimum wage range even, just round this off to a hundred bucks. So this is not like a quarter or a nickel. This coin is a day's wages. So figure out what your day's wage is. Can you do that real quick in your mind? Even if it's minimum wages, at least say 100 bucks. So picture these are, these are $100 bill coins. So, aha, now all of a sudden you understand the parable, right? So it says, yeah, which one of you, if, if you lost one of these $100 bills or coins, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she's found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Hey, rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that was lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is more joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then Jesus rolls into a third story, and at this point, he gets a little more personal with it. The third story goes like this. And he said, a man who had uh, two sons. And maybe he's looking back and forth at these two groups. 
two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me, my inheritance. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together, went off on a journey to a distant country, and there he squandered his estate, his inheritance, with loose living. Fill in the blanks, right? Loose living. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went, the the young man went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that other country, and he sent him into his fields to feed their swine. Now, keep in mind, by the way, not only now is he having to survive by feeding swine, if you remember that the Jews did not even eat swine, okay? They weren't into bacon and ham based on Old Testament law. And, uh, you know, I was just in Israel teaching for a week, by the way, uh, two weeks ago. Some of you were praying for me, had a chance to go and spend about 10 days in Israel and teach leadership to a group of pastors, some Palestinian and Israeli pastors, uh, Messianic pastors. And, And let me tell you something. After 10 days in Israel, I hit the ground in San Francisco, went straight to a a restaurant and ordered two eggs, toast, hash browns, and double the bacon. (laughs) You don't realize how much you miss that stuff. But So my point being this, this guy is having to survive by actually even working for a citizen of another country, feeding animals that were considered unclean to even be around and to eat. But he's having to do this to just survive. In fact, the story gets a little more gross in a way. It gets more graphic at least. It says he sent him into the field to feed his swine and he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods or the feed that the swine were eating and no one was giving him anything. But when he came to his census, he said, man, he says, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread to eat. My father feeds his servants. He feeds his workers. But I am dying here with hunger, feeding the pigs. He says, I will get up and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I'm not asking for that, but just make me one of your hired men. And he got up and he came to his father, But while he was still far off, a long way off, the father saw him coming and felt compassion and he ran and he embraced him and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. The father totally ignores the son's statement. Says to his slaves, Quickly, quickly, bring the best robe and put it on him, a sign of honor. Bring a ring and put it on his hand and sandals on his feet, a sign of sonship. And then bring the fatted calf. Get the fattest of the young calves that we've been saving for Super Bowl Sunday. It's not in the Greek text, but trust me, it's there. This is the Super Bowl Sunday calf. Bring it out. Kill it. And let us eat and celebrate, for this son of mine is de- was dead and has come to life. And again, he was lost and has been found, and they began to celebrate. Now that's where you would expect this parable to end. 
Because the theme is the same, right? Something of value is lost and it's found. It's lost, it's found. It's lost, it's found. But now Jesus, looking at these two crowds of people, because up until now, the religious leaders, what are they thinking? They're thinking, okay, yeah, it makes sense. You go after your lost sheep. It makes sense. You get your lost coin. We totally agree with you, Jesus. Makes sense maybe even that you welcome your son back. We kind of agree with that, Jesus, maybe. But then he says, but let's talk about the second son. And I'm sure, if I can take a little liberty here, Jesus leans in the direction of the religious leaders. He says, let's talk about the second son. He says, but the father said, verse 25, now his older son was in the field. And when he came in and approached the house, he heard the music and the dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he received him back safe and sound. But the second son became angry, was not even willing to go into the party. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to the father, look, father, for so many years I've been serving you. I've never neglected to uh, a single command of yours. And yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, pointing to the tax collectors, the sinners, when this son of yours came home who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him? And he said to him, the father did, Son, you have always been with me. All that I have, all that is mine is yours. But, you, but we had to celebrate and rejoice. For this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. And you've got to imagine these two groups listening to Jesus. They knew who was each of the sons in the story. You see, Jesus' intent was not just to address God's love for the sinner, but to address God's disgust at the religious leaders for their lack of compassion, lack of love for those that were lost. Three stories, one key point. that heaven values and seeks the lost and the wandering of this planet. Let me say that again. At the key point of this whole set of three stories, they're designed to be taught together. You should never separate them out. Because if you don't get into the third story, you're going to miss the main point. Is that God has a passionate love and places a high value on the people of planet earth that are still lost without him and wandering and need to come home. So what do we learn from this? Let me pull out a few short sub points that feed into this. Number one, it teaches us the priority of the lost, even over those of us that have been found. The reason 
Let me give you a reason and a reminder for each of these points. If you want to take a few notes, it's in your outline. Here we go. Number one, the reason is not that they're more deeply loved, but that they're more desperately lost. It's not saying that God loved the one son more than the other. It's not saying that God loved the lost coin more than the ones that he still had, or especially that he loved the one lost sheep and didn't really care about the 99. Of course not. But what he's saying is from an eternal perspective, the lost are so desperately lost that God will even leave the 99 in the wilderness to fend for themselves at times in order to put his attention on finding that one. Wow. Imagine that. You know, because if I'm a shepherd, I don't do that. I'm thinking, you know something? I, I wish the dumb sheep would come back. I'm going to pray for him. But, you know, I kind of got 99 here to take care of, and that's all I have time to do. But the heart of God is he even leaves the 99 and goes after the one. That's the kingdom's value system. Because the kingdom values that one desperately lost sheep. It's a reminder, too, for all of us, and the reminder that goes with it is this. We were all once the lost one. Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's not one person in this room that wasn't at one time in your life, at some point, you were the one that was off lost. And that God valued you so much that He did something to reach out to you. Or if you haven't come into a relationship with Jesus Christ yet and you're here today trying to figure out God and figure Him out, you need to know that you know, until you come to Christ and experience His grace and put your faith in Him, we've all been the one. Now, I didn't realize it so much because I kind of grew up, in my case, in a Christian family and had Christian mom and dad around, always kind of going to church. But it hit me when I was a fifth grader that I was very lost until I would place my faith in Christ. And it was early in life as a fifth grade boy that someone stopped me and talked to me. And it brought me life in Christ. So all of us have been the one. And then we kind of tend to forget that of what it feels like to to be outside the kingdom of God, a part of what is called in Scripture the kingdom of darkness. Well, God values the one. Jesus always valued the one. Whether it was the one woman that was caught in adultery or this crowd of sinners and tax collectors, or whether it was the one highly religious guy named Nicodemus that came to Jesus in John chapter 3. And Nicodemus was a guy who memorized Scripture, never missed a Sabbath, always went to church, always went to synagogue. I mean, this guy was a, was a religious leader, but yet he had never trusted the grace of God. He never placed his faith in the grace of God that brings life. And Jesus said to him the same thing he said to the, to the prostitute. He said, you know, you need life. And until you receive life, being religious doesn't get it for you. That's okay. You know, I feel that way sometimes too. That's okay. Number two, what's the second thing we learn? The priority of the lost and the value of the one. Kind of hinted at this already, but verse 4 and 8 both emphasize the one in contrast to the many. And the reason, again, is this. You know, crowds are always multiples of one. Do you realize that? Crowds are always multiples of one. Jesus was launching a movement 
He was launching a movement that he tells us in other parables is going to be like a mustard seed that grows into a tremendous explosive growth. And he's launching a movement that would be billions of people on planet Earth someday. But yet, even in the midst of that, he cares about the one, the value of the one, even as you're growing a large multitude of people. When you, are, when you and I come to Christ, we become part of a global eternal family, a huge global kingdom of people. Colossians 1, write this reference down, look it up this week. Colossians 1.13 says that when we come to Christ that he transfers us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. So we're now part of this movement It's a movement that someday will live forever and ever with God in heaven and on the new heaven and the new earth and a perfect kingdom uh, forever and ever, free of sin, free of death, all of that forever and ever. But it's also a now movement that you and I get to be part of, a global family, a global movement of people that even though we live in different earthly kingdoms with borders and, and all the fights that that creates over refugees and everything else, okay? The reality is our citizenship is in the kingdom of God. So when I greet my brother from Kenya, for example, when I go to Kenya, I will not greet him saying, I, want, I bring you greetings from the American church. I, I always do this. I'll not say that. Because there is no American church. There's no Kenyan church. There's just a global church of God. So I can greet you from the church that lives in America, but I can't greet you from the American church. It doesn't exist. You're not part of an American church or a Seacoast church. You're a part of the kingdom of God. And, and, and we need to remember that that's made up of individuals and place value on every single person. And therefore, what's the reminder for our lives? Don't just value everyone, value Every one. See the difference? Some people just value crowds. God doesn't value crowds. He values you and me. And he values them, meaning people that disagree with us or protest against us or even abuse Christians. In other words... Those people, God values every single soul on planet Earth. How does he do all that? I don't know. He's got a bigger heart than I do. But that's what we are to be like. We're to be people as a church that values the one. We go after the one. We go out of our way for the one. Not just for the masses, but every single person. You know how you grow a big church? You grow a big church one person at a time that's how god wants us to think we need to be a culture of people that value individuals so when you see a new person and you don't recognize their face guess what i want to give you a challenge take a second and turn away from your best friends that you're huddled up with and say oh excuse me i'll be right back but i see a new person i need to say hi to I think God wants us to do that. That's easier for some people like me than it is some people like you. I'm an extrovert. I love meeting new people. Um, but it's a value that God wants us to hold. Watch out for the one. Care about that one. Number three, 
It tells us that we have a responsibility to actively search. These parables are full of searching technology and searching language, aren't they? The reason is love takes initiative. Love doesn't just pray for the lost sheep or, or hope for the lost coin or, or, or shoot up a prayer for the lost son. They, you, you see them taking initiative. Light a lamp, sweep the floor, leave the 99 in the wilderness, go search for the one, bring the one home. There's an emphasis on taking initiative because the reminder is this. God wants us to be actively searching. The reminder is this. The difference in living a search and taking a stroll is mission. The difference in a search and a stroll is mission. When I'm searching, I've got a target I'm looking for, right? And we want to be living lifestyles that are missional, that are focused outward, that are actually keeping our radar up looking for the one, looking for the lost. And then paying attention when God brings those opportunities around us. Number four, we're almost done. It tells us what we should really rejoice over. You know, what is it that should cause us as a church to be excited? And it's not that we have a big crowd. It's that we are seeing the one who is lost being found. That's what should get us excited. The reason we do that is because every single turnaround or repentance, which simply means not that you morally make yourself good enough for God. Don't picture that. The word repentance means to turn in a new direction. It means to basically to turn and come home to God. It's to place your faith in Christ. And every single person that chooses to make that turnaround changes someone's eternity. We don't just improve their life. We don't just slow global warming or this or that or any other problem you want to fix on planet Earth. You actually change a person's eternity when you are able to reach out and help the lost be found. You know what that does? Think of the value to that person's life. And think of the ripple effect as you change one person's eternity and that changes their friend's eternity and that changes their family forever and that changes their children forever and that changes their grandchildren forever. And, and I've seen that in my own family as God reached down and touched my grandfather fairly late in life and my grandmother. And as a result, their 10 kids all end up coming to faith. They had problems and struggles, but... Wow, they got 10 out of 10 of their kids came to faith. So I got 27 first cousins. That's a lot of Burke. You don't want to be around that much Burke at one time. Handling just me is hard enough. You know, but uh, yeah, when I go to my family reunions, there's all this, this mass of people, and there is a theme of faith. They've not all come to faith, but the majority of them have, and it's transformed lives. And and it's been the ripple effect of, of the grace of God and the touch of Christ changing the entire direction of a family, changing the direction of my life. And hopefully I've changed a few and continue to around the world as we travel and teach and share with you here at Seacoast. And so see, all of this ripples down because at some point, one common coal miner talked to my father, my, fa my grandfather, about Christ. And he embraced Jesus. And even though he died at age 57 while cutting a tree down with a chainsaw of a heart attack, 
Before he died, he left a heritage of faith that is rippling down and affecting you in California today. So I don't even know the name of the coal miner in Cabin Creek, West Virginia, that talked to my grandfather. But God knows that. Because God values the one. So we know that we celebrate new life. Every turnaround changes someone's eternity when we live this way. So we celebrate new life. Last but not least, that final parable drives home the nature of the grace of God. When the Father, God, shows grace to His Son who squandered everything he'd been given and came home empty-handed and received grace and was welcomed home. The loving father welcoming home that son who had no reason to be welcomed home by the world's standards. See, grace forgives. Grace is big enough to forgive any sin. Grace is big enough to forgive all of us And it's that grace of God that the religious leaders were lacking. So as we apply this in our life as a church, if we want heaven to meet earth in our lives, you know, what's this look like? It means we slow down enough to take opportunity to try to have a priority on loving people that are still outside the family of God. The priority of the lost, the value of the one, Every single conversation has potential to change someone's eternity and begin to live that way and see what God does. I just want to close with one short illustration and then a challenge for you to pray. Let me give you the challenge first, and that's this. I gave you a little handout this morning. It's a little bookmark that our graphics team put together. Here's the purpose for this. Pull this out, everyone, please. It has five spaces. Here's my challenge to you is to write five names on five spaces of five people that as far as you know, they're either lost without Christ or they are wandering without a home spiritually. They're lost or they're wandering and disconnected from His kingdom, from His church. Write those five names down and then begin to pray daily for those five people and say, God, give me opportunity to bring them life. That's my challenge. I will close, though, by telling you a story. Um, Last week was weird for me because I had come back from Israel on Friday night. I flew back in. While in Israel, I picked up a virus, a bug. As I get ready to sneeze here in just a minute, you can all get ready. No, I'm, I'm okay now. But I came back feeling pretty sick, and it got worse and worse the next day. So I woke up Sunday morning. I did something that I asked Becky today. I said, can you remember a time in the last 38 years that I've been a pastor when I've been so sick on Sunday morning, I wouldn't go to church. Uh, and Beck said, I can never remember that happening. And neither can I. 38 years, I've always, even if I'm kind of sick, I just come and spread it around. <laughs> that, that's going to stop all the handshaking with Pastor Dale, isn't it? Yeah. Now, you know, I try to stay away. But, but no, I couldn't remember ever that happening. Last Sunday, I woke up feeling bad enough and I said, you know something? Thank God Ryan is leading us as a church and he's preaching and I don't have to be there. Therefore, I'm going to the doctor. I'm not waiting until Monday. I went to the emergent care and sure enough, the doctor told me, he said, yeah, you have advanced bronchitis probably a couple days from being in pneumonia. So he threw some strong meds at me. That's why I'm feeling great today. (laughs) Okay. 
yeah, I'm feeling good today. But I would say, God, why? So I'm so I, so I see the doctor. He sends me to the pharmacy. I check in at the pharmacy to get my collection of meds. I have to wait about 10 minutes. And in, in line with me at the pharmacy is a young mom with two kids, one of them wearing a Lucadia t-shirt. So I kind of was friendly and just said to her, it's kind of tough when kids are sick, isn't it? And she said, you're telling me. She sits down next to me. She says, oh my gosh. She says, one of those kids have been sick every day since Thanksgiving. And then my husband was sick, and I get sick, and they get sick, and we just, it just goes on and on, and I don't know if I can handle this. I said, it's tough being a mom with little kids. I said, you know, my wife has been involved in an organization called MOPS. Have you ever heard of that? She said, no, I've never heard of that. I said, well, MOPS is an organization. It stands for Mothers of Preschoolers. And it's just a place where young moms can gather with other young moms and try to figure out how do you survive this phase of life and how do you help each other. And it also talks about a relationship with God and how that can be part of your life that can help you. And, you know, and does it, you know, she said, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let me, and she whips out her purse. Let me write this down. I got to look this up. That's what, so she writes down mops, takes the information. She says, I'm going to look them up. I said, and let me tell you, there's a group in Encinitas, not far from you, at Seacoast Church, that would love to help you and your kids just survive life and figure it all out. And she said, thank you, thank you, thank you. And she writes it down. Now, she may be here today, I don't know. But here's my point is this. Every time someone tells you how hard life is, what do you say? What do you say? Do you offer them hope? Do you offer them help do you offer them a place to go to find out answers and to to make life work it's called the kingdom of god it's called the church just reach out and love on people offer to help be the loving touch of christ in whatever way god opens opportunities and then invite them to investigate the kingdom and begin by praying for five of them that you already know, and being open every day to those you have yet to meet. Pray with me. Father God, thank you so much for your kingdom, for your love for us, uh, for your presence. Uh, thank you for the incredible teachings on the value of lost and wandering people. And we pray that you'd empower us as a church to go out and scatter in the community today and every day of the week, and to be that loving touch of Christ to those around us. Father, even as we give now as an act of worship, we thank you that we give so that we can reach out to Africa and around the world to love on people for Christ. We give so that we as a church can be a place of compassion. So we thank you for this chance to worship you even with our gifts in Christ's name. Amen.